Patrick Peake, Rob Stone, and myself, Warren Booth. Uh, welcome back. It has been a while, and I take full responsibility for the prolonged uh, absence of the podcast. I'm sure many of our listeners are aware I had a kind of crazy 2023 with my spring kind of fortnightly commutes between Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and Blacksburg, Virginia. And then we finally got into into Blacksburg in July and just getting into a new house, getting the kids settled in school, getting the lab all organized. My timing has just, I've just had no time to do anything. I also had to build a snake room and move every, all of my animals from Knoxville from my friend back up and it's kind of been a crazy time. So I take full responsibility for our prolonged absence from the airwaves. Yeah. Build, building a house kind of can get in the way of things some more. <laughs> it was yeah. cool to watch. It was cool to watch the pot progress pictures though, as it was coming together. That is kind of neat, you know, like, you know, being able to look back now and, you know, with, with Facebook sending you little reminders, but what you were doing this time last year and, you know, there's a, just a site and then there's the foundations in place in the basement and then you see the first floor and it's pretty cool to see it all go up you know and, and we're living in a community where ultimately and within the next five years there's going to be about 450 houses mm-hmm. split between townhomes and villas and then the single family homes that we're in and ours was the first fa- single family home to go up and it, and it went up pretty quickly about six months but now that there's so many more people developing there you know, the houses are taking nine or 10 months to kind of yeah. uh, to put up. So we got in early, and which was great, you know, because it meant that our house was actually completed a week early or two weeks early right. from schedule. But we ended up closing a week late because we got stuck in Ireland um, for an extra couple of days due to flight delays. And uh, that then was right over July 4th. And we ended up having to delay closing for a week. So there was four of us living in my one-bedroom apartment. In Blacksburg, which was tough. Wow! Uh, I don't want to do that again. But uh, no. But but you got all the snakes moved and everything. You got that. Got them all moved. Yeah. So you know, I was lucky. I've mentioned before that I I've got one of my best friends that I've known for thirty years um, from Northern Ireland lives in Knoxville now, and uh, and Knoxville is right on that drive from from Tulsa to Blacksburg. You you go I forty, you get to Knoxville, and then it turns into I eighty one, and you go on up to, to Blacksburg. Okay. Um, so I was able to drive. It's about eleven hour drive from from Tulsa to Knoxville. So I, he said, just leave all the snakes with him. He keeps snakes again himself. Um, I got him back into keeping snakes, so he's not got a lot of snakes. Um, <laughs> but uh, he had a spare room, and, and we put everything in there. And oh, nice. uh, it just meant you know everything was on a really sparse feeding schedule throughout the spring because I didn't want to feed everything, and then I wasn't going to be coming back again for two weeks, and I wasn't going to ask him to clean everything. Right. So I was feeding everything really, really sparsely. Um, and yet I still ended up with four litters. Right. Um, which was kind of crazy and four really, really nice litters. Yeah, and then I, we also had a, we had a clutch of Darwin carpets that I co, um, uh, managed the project with my buddy Jonathan as well, you know? So it was like really? five, five litters, clutches of babies, which is not expected. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, uh, but it's nice to get that all over. I, I'll mention that those litters in a minute. You know, I thought, you know, what would be cool to do in this episode is just to catch up. You know, we don't yeah. have a guest, but given that it's been five or six months since we've been back as a group, you know, I thought we've got a lot of things to talk about. 2023 was an interesting year. Um, you know, we all had some cool things happen, cool projects. And, yeah. and I thought it'd be neat just as a catch up 
and then talk about what our goals are for 2024. Uh, maybe talk about any cool things that we saw pop up from other breeders, which might be interesting to talk about. And then that towards the end of the show, we can talk about some of the shows that we've got lined up, some of the, some of the guests that we've got lined up and, and really also to be able to put it out to our listeners that they should contact us if they've got ideas for, for shows as well. Yeah. Sounds good. So how about you, Keith? Do you want to give us a rundown of your exciting 2023? Cause you produced some cool things. Yeah, so I had a pretty good bow a year. I mean, I produced some different colubrids, and and I did get a nice clutch of blackheads uh, eggs too, but that they went bad. But boa wise, um, I had a litter of Argentines. I had twenty seven babies there. Um, I had a litter of Kiana boas. Um, I think I had fifteen animals in that litter. Um, I had Rochenberger eye again, but it was a very small litter. Um, I didn't really, I kind of put the pair together. I really should have given the female a year off, which I'm doing this year. Um, so that was a very small litter. I had some Candoyle Pulsani, um, a litter of those. And what else did I have? Uh, Sanzinia. I had a litter of Sanzinia. So all really cool. I hadn't had Argentine boas in a very long time. So it was cool to walk into the room and the rack of babies all start hissing at you. <laughs> and it's, yeah. was, you know, they're serenading you as you walk by. The interesting thing with them though, is they're like such bluffers. At least this litter was like, they did a lot of hissing and, and phantom strikes, but like they never really connected with you. The, the Guiana didn't mind to connect with you as, yeah. as, as, as babies. But uh, yeah, the, the, I find the Argentine bow is pretty cool as little ones. They're feisty and scrappy, but it's all seems to be a bluff with them. I've heard that, you know, nearly 30 years ago, whenever I first saw Occidentalis was at a friend's uh, house in London and he had a big collection of locality boas. And he had a huge pair of Occidentalis, of Argentine yeah. boas. Like these things were enormous. Yeah. Eating rabbits and just, just insane. Um, but the adults were really placid. But yeah. anytime I saw babies, they were just lassoes. Oh, yeah. Like they were hissing and striking. And, yeah. and my friend was like, yeah, you know, give them a year and then they just really start calming down. They realize yeah. you're not going to eat them. And, yeah. And they just go on their way. So that's really cool. Yeah. So how big is your female? Because 27 babies, that's a that's a great litter. Yes. Yeah, you know, she's very small. Like uh, some other people that have, have Argentines and have bred them when they've come to the house and seen her, they're like, wow, she's so small. I I would say she's only like five and a half, six feet long. Um, and, you know, they can have really big litters. Like, I know, you know, I've heard of 40, 45 babies. So... 27 was actually perfect for me to manage. So I kind of like her at this size. Um, and, uh, yeah, she did really good. It was kind of interesting. One thing is I keep all the boas on Cypress mulch because they all seem to, since, I, I don't know, I'm getting more into like, I'll do a little bit more work if the boa, if the animals seem to, you know, like it. So the boas, my, all my big boas, they seem to like to really burrow in that with just their heads sticking out. So I give them a nice thick substrate and, uh, the cool thing is I got her on video before she dropped the babies is she would use her head like a shovel and she'd get to the side of the cage and she'd turn her head sideways and she'd actually scoop all the aspen 
um, out of the corner of the cage where she was going to drop the babies and, and push it down to the bare plywood uh, bottom because I have them in wooden cages that I made. And she cleared that spot for a good day and a half. And she laid, she dropped the litter in the exact spot that she cleared out. And it took up the whole spot. It's like she knew how much to clear, drop the babies. And they literally took up that whole spot, one baby in its sack, laying perfectly side by side. And it was the exact shape of the area she cleaned out. So that was kind of cool to watch. I had a camera in her cage and I would just be at work and I'd take peeks every once in a while watching because I knew she was close. So watching that all unfold was pretty cool to watch for sure. That's awesome. I, you know, I, I've seen my boas do the same thing because I've kept boas on paper for a long time, but then whenever they're getting close to giving birth, I would put in shredded newspaper or shredded mm-hmm. just you know, junk mail basically yeah. to give them something to burrow into and you'd see the exact same behavior, this kind of scooping it oh, up with their cool. head and moving it across. And then I I eventually then just switched and put in cat litter trays into the mm-hmm. into the tubs with substrate in it and then paper around the rest of it. And they would just always give birth in that tub. Oh, wow. So it was the cool. easiest thing to clean out because they just went in yeah. and picked it out. And it was there was no goo that you had to scrape out for days. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. how much of a cleaning project that turns out to be, right? Oh, man, it's, it's insane. But that's really cool. Now, Argentines are something I've never kept. And I've always thought about it, but it's their size that has yeah. always prevented that. You know, I, I like my boas that I can keep in those kind of um, freedom breeder nineties or the ARS, I think 80, I think it was the 80 system or 80, 16, 80, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always liked that size for my boas, you know? Um, yeah. You know, if I, if I expand into a second room, which might happen, um, I might get a couple of the um, larger cages for some Occidentalis. I think it'd be kind of yeah. cool to have. Yeah. I mean, like I say, she's, uh, a 2013 animal, so she was 10 years old. This wow. was her first litter. And a jumbo rat is a good meal for her. Yeah. I'll give you an idea of her size. She's not. So that's probably similar animal. in size then to some of my like Costa Rican boas. The, like the ones that I've got that are 10 to 15 years old would, would eat a jumbo rat, but it would, you know, do them for three or four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, so they probably are quite similar in size. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know. So. Well, let me see. The other thing that was kind of cool this year is, uh, so the Candoya, um, dropped the litter. She, she had a crazy litter though. Um, there was a, it was the first time breeding this female. Um, <clears throat> she dropped a couple slugs, um, like two stillborn. And I only got like, I think it was like three or four babies out of her. Um, but the way I set it up, and I've done it in the past with animals that I've gotten from other people that they said they weren't eating. That seems to work really well. And uh, they took right off. Like there was no problems feeding them whatsoever. And everybody's like always saying what a hard time they had with their babies and getting them feeding. And these guys always take off um, really easy this way. And I, I buy those um, containers that you would get like from a Chinese takeout place. I buy them from Amazon. Like I'll buy a 50 pack of them cheap. And I'll take the clear lid and I'll just burn a couple holes on the sides just to get a little ventilation in there. And what I do is I also buy the, they also sell the little cups that you could put condiments in like uh, mustard or ketchup mm-hmm. online. And so I'll buy that as the water dish in there, but I fill it with sphagnum that's super wet. 
and I fill it right up to the to the side of the little black container. Um, and they'll burrow in that and you don't see them. And then they'll just start sticking their head out. When they just start sticking their head out, you know, they're getting ready to feed, you know? Mm. And I think a lot of it has to do with they're in a small container. The sides are black, so they don't really see a lot of movement. Like they, like when you have them in something clear, any movement in that room is disturbing them and maybe setting them off and making them feel uneasy. But with the black sides on this, and when they're in there, burrowed in that, they, they feel very secluded in there. And when they start sticking their head out there, all I do is I take live little pinkies and I, I buy the frozen silver sides at the fish store and I throw them out and I'll, I'll pinch the belly to break that open and I'll cover that live little pinky with the scent of the, um, uh, the insides of a silver side and drop it in there and they they'll nail it before I even get the top back on. Wow. And I, I, I guess from Richard Ross, I talked to him about these cause he used to find them actually in a while and was one of the first Bowids. I think he, that he bred and all. And, um, he said that the area they come from, you know, that they're, they're very cryptic like that and they're very hidden and all that. So I'm just wondering if people aren't saying, and they like it really wet. Like, I mean, they, they don't get any skin problems or anything. I keep that tag them very, very, very damp. And it's just like, uh, um, you know, totally, um, got condensation on the inside of the lid and everything else. And, and they do great. And I keep them like that. So they're feeding really good and they shed a couple times. And then I start setting them up more in a traditional way. Um, but I don't know, they take off really well for me like that. And, uh, I just thought it was really cool to get something that's supposed to be hard to feed, feeding right off the bat and, and going, you know, pretty. So pretty what, what, what kind of turned you onto that idea? So my stay with blood pythons. Um, one thing I noticed with blood pythons from the very beginning of keeping these monstrous imports that were the only thing available back in the day um, was how nervous of a snake they are. That's why people deem them aggressive um, but it's really a nervousness. They're, they're very almost like an insecure animal. And that's that little things set them off, um, thinking that, you know, there's a problem about and they got to defend themselves. So you'll always, I used to break, you know, hatch a few hundred up to 500 even on uh, one year, um, baby bloods and short tails. And you always get some animals that are, you know, more hesitant to feed others take off right away. And I would set them up the same way, but I'd set them up in a shoe box um, with a deli cup for a water bowl. But I would pack that with sphagnum moss and they would hunker down in there again with the heads sticking out. And one thing I noticed, if you have them in a bare container and you put a live hopper in, that nervous snake that doesn't want to eat is so intimidated by that mouse running around or just not confident enough to take a pre-killed or frozen thawed or anything like that. So by getting them in that sphagnum moss, it's almost like a spider web around them. They're in tune with everything inside that container. When you drop a little hopper mouse, a lot of people try too small of a meal. They actually need a bigger meal and that type of movement. But when you drop that in there, them walking on that sphagnum moss was almost like a, a building of anticipation that the snake could feel something was in their domain, but it wasn't in contact with them, but yet they could sense it was there from the vibrations going through that sphagnum moss. And as soon as it would get in front of that head, boy, they'd nail it right away. 
So I got a lot of really difficult feeders of bloods and short tails started that way. So I said, let me give that a try with these Candoya because they, they actually are kind of similar in their habitats in the wild, you know, and sure enough, it, it worked great this year. I mean, all the babies started really easily. So but that was really cool. That's great. Yeah. So, so that's a weird, is that a small litter for those? I've never. Very small. Very, yeah. Usually we're normally having like dozens of babies. 50 to a hundred. Yeah. So it's really wow. sweet. And I palpate the female and she's cleaned out. So, you know, a lot of things too, is a lot of guys say, you know, the best way to breed them is multiple, multiple males. Well, I only have one male and he is an eager, eager breeder, but I only had one male on that female. So I don't know enough about the species if that had something to do with mm. You know, only the one male um, breeding her, and that's why the litter was so small. Um, so that's a possibility for sure. Do they eat slugs? Um, I have not noticed that. You know, the really well. No, I've seen with rainbow boas and all, but the yeah. Corallus, You know, they're especially Cordelinus. Yeah. Uh, they're they're, they're yeah, really they're all over it. it. Yeah, yeah, for that's, sure. Yeah, that's weird. You know, because whenever whenever I saw that that litter of yours, I thought you know that it reminded me of the Costa Rican Ruschenberger litters that we had um, maybe three or four years ago. Remember our females dropped like one yeah. or two babies and then waited four days and then dropped right. the rest of the litter. Yeah. So I, I was wondering whether that was uh, something that was going to happen with yours. But I was hoping. Yeah, I was yeah. hoping it would, but it didn't. Yeah. I, I kept waiting for that, you know, waterfall of babies to come out, but it just Never didn't happen. happen. Yeah. Wow. And the females so, back feeding and, and yeah. well. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I gave her this year off just in case. And, and being that I only, I'm growing up a couple really nice males. So, um, I'm still a little ways out on that, but, uh, so I'm back still with this one male and I have like five females. So I just pick one girl to put them with, uh, right now until I get more males up to size. Um, so I put them with a different female and we'll see what happens this year. How big was the female? Um, she can eat like, um, I'm going to say she's about two and a half feet long, oh, um, cool. but pretty, pretty stout. And, you know, she could feed on a uh, small rat for sure. No right. problem. Yeah. Yeah. They're very always, cool species. Yeah. I've looked at them for a long time. I keep, I'm sure at some point in time I'll end up with them. I, I like those and I like the, uh, the Viper Boas. Yeah, me too. And uh, and I keep thinking about those, and then I I look at the prices that Viper boas were going for during the COVID years. So I was like, yeah. I'm like getting Viper boas. I know. <laughs> I was offered some really, really, really nice red imports <clears throat> that had just come in. You could see how red they were before they even shed that. Yeah. What they call jungle skin off. Yeah. And uh, but they were 500 bucks each, you know. And I'm like, oh man. And they're so easy to sex, and yet the guy I wanted to get them from, he, he didn't want to sex them for me, so I didn't want to take a shot, wind up with three males or whatever else, right. you know. So right. I kind of passed on the deal, but I kind of wish I had gotten a couple of them too. Yeah. Same time. Well, that's really cool. They're, they they took off, and they're, they're now established and, and doing well. Yeah, yeah. And then the other cool thing uh, this year was um, the Sanzinia. Um, and again, another small litter from a female that gave me 15 babies last time. Um, but her offspring, I brought it to a different male, a male on loan here from Paul. Um, the female is actually, uh, Elijah from Jogonaut Reptiles. Um, I have animals from, uh, Matt Minnetola, Paul Mitzfeld and Elijah here. And we're working together, you know, spreading so the babies Eastern, between Eastern. us. Yeah. These are all Easterns. Yeah. So 
Paul had sent me this uh, mail that's a little unique in the shading of his green and all that. And um, this first time I brought him to one of the females. And the babies came out basically patternless. But the real interesting thing was uh, one of them especially is very yellow in color. And it's the first time that I have seen that in Easterns or heard about it from other breeders. Um, and then Paul had mentioned and Jeff Murray had mentioned that they knew somebody else that had an offspring like that. And as it grew up, it just turned out to be like a very light colored, lime colored green Sanzinia. Um, but I've never seen that before. Like the odd yellow emerald tree boa that you see as a neonate, you know, um, compared to the typical orange or, or green ones. Um, so I guess it's just the thing that happens, but they are pretty patternless. They don't have real bold, um, saddles on them and the white there's very little white on them also so it'll be interesting to see what they we're gonna spread them out between uh matt and uh elijah this time and uh they'll be raising them up so we'll see what they turn into how many did you get only two <laughs> it was the year of twos <laughs> it was the year of twos wow. she 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 didn't have any slugs i mean she didn't have any stillborn and yeah. she had uh four slugs uh, with the two babies and the two babies were great though. They started really easy. They're very robust. They're real, real snappy. I actually brought them to Daytona because Paul was going there and, and uh, a couple other people wanted to see him. So I actually brought them down for, for them to check out. Um, but they started real easy and, um, they're doing great. And I just got to hook up with Elijah and Matt and get them into their hands down and, you know, see what they look like in a year or two. But yeah, I thought it was really cool. Have you ever seen a yellow one before? I never saw a no, yellow so one. Not, not like for that. Easterns. I have yeah. for Westerns. And you've probably seen the picture before. Maybe 20 something years ago, there was a breeder of Sanzinia in Europe, maybe France called Rene Voss. Okay. And he produced a litter of Westerns, you know, and the typical kind of Western kind of babies came out, you know, kind mm -hmm. of brownish and this and that. But one of them was pale yellow cream colored uh -huh. and it looked exceptional and i think i've seen another couple from that line pop out but that guy disappeared i don't know what happened to him and mm. i don't know what happened to that animal um but i know people that had animals from the lines that he had and they would pop out the odd yellow one mm. um, but i don't know how they developed over time you know i just kind yeah. of lost contact with those people so yeah. it'd be really interesting you know you know i think part of it is that Sanzinia in general are just so infrequently bred that we don't know the true phenotypic variation for the species. Yeah, right. You know, I've got I've got friends that that uh, are in uh, curators of museums here in the U.S. that do a lot of reptile work in in Madagascar, and that's they said the variation you see in Sanzinia is really quite remarkable. Yeah, you know, across the range. You know, obviously you've got the two clear um, ranges of the species, but somewhere in the middle there's a real um, kind of degree of variation that you will see and whether that's through ancestral hybridization or whether it's just through locality variation I, I don't know yeah. but we don't have any locality data really for our easterns or our westerns right you know they are yeah. eastern or western right um, um, so it, it's hard to know whether that's just natural variation in the species and the fact that you're putting two animals together potentially from different localities that then produce some kind of unusual phenotype we don't know but I think it's really yeah. cool, and I think I think being able to document that and 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 watch them develop over the next couple of years will be great because they yeah. they do go through a dramatic color change. You know, right. people don't really think about it. You know, I, I look at um at mine and 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 I you know scroll through my my pictures on my phones and I look at 
you know, those babies and wow, you know, some of them bright red and now, yeah. you know, they're just a, just a totally different animal. They truly are just like Emerald tree boas in, in terms of right. the, on the genetic color change. It just takes a little bit longer to go through it. How's that female doing that you got for me? Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. She's yeah. doing great. So I, I moved them, um, into, uh, two foot cube kind of arboreal enclosures mm-hmm. and it's funny because I've always, you know, the way I had them set up before, they were very terrestrial. They rarely went into the branches. Now they don't come out of them. Wow. So they're constantly in the branches. And I go into them in the morning. They're sitting with a head pointed down, you know, like the typical yeah. kind of, uh, green tree python pose. Um, and they are just uh, – and since I moved them into those enclosures, they have turned on feeding like it's just a totally different story. Because before, wow. you know, I would have to leave the meal with them and I just, you know, a defrost – mouse or rat and just close the drawer and or right. close the tub and walk away and i had them in like arboreal enclosures then i had them in racks so in between different things and they were never they just never they would feed but just never with me around right wow well, once i put them in those arboreal enclosures and they're right up on the top you know uh when when you walk into my room and they're always pointing down looking at you and I, as soon as i open that door they're straight for food yeah so it makes a well. difference yeah it makes a big difference for sure yeah yeah, so I'm excited. You know, they're feeding great, and um, you know, hopefully, in a few years' time, I'll I'll be able to attempt to breed them. You know, I suppose yeah. it, it, it's just the big story is, you know, what size and what age. You know, but I'm sure once I once I get them, but like, what are, what are your adult females eating? Are they like medium rat kind of thing? Or yeah, they... medium rats yeah. and uh, five years, I think, yeah. is a fair fair time to start with them for sure. Yeah, that's what I was females. thinking. Yeah, four you know, my, years my males. Now. Yeah, my male's certainly ready to breathe, so I'm just looking for a Dumerals female for him, you know, to, to pair him up with. <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not be joking. But uh <laughs> But they yeah, they're 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 doing really well. So but that's yeah. great. That's that's cool that you know, you had a, a bunch of really cool litters. Did yeah. you produce Hog Islands this year as well? Uh no. I gave her the year off, but they're actually breeding like crazy right now, so I'm hoping right. uh, for a nice litter from them this year. That'd be good. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. What about you, Rob? Anything exciting from you? Oh, in terms of litters, the only one that I had was a litter of Jamaican bows um, this past year, and then I sent Keith a handful of those. Uh, they're doing great. They're doing great. Yep. Yeah. So the, those were pretty. The only real interesting component to that uh, litter, I suppose, was that when I had come down, I guess I had come down fairly quickly from when uh, she had birthed them so that there was one that uh, looked like it was stillborn just from sort of, you know, a distance or whatever. I wasn't in there poking around on them. Uh, and then I went away for an hour and came back and they were all alive. So, and there was the, the you know, there wasn't anything there, but, and there were a couple of slugs that she hadn't eaten. So I doubt she would have started, started there. So uh, it seemed like an instance where, despite its sort of odd position and whatever, it uh, it's just taking its time to be a normal baby. Hmm. So uh, how many babies did you get? Uh, I think six, 16 or 17. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, they're, they're a really similar, pretty snake. Yeah, for sure. That was similar to a couple of years before what she had done uh, and similar to what I see in the, the Puerto Ricans as well. And how hard is it to get them feeding? The uh, other, yeah, well, for sure. Although Keith sound, sounds like he's done really well. Uh, Jeff has done well. Dustin's done well. So, yeah, um, it seems like uh, the second layer has really taken off pretty well for everybody. I mostly 
being busy had sent uh, most of them out. So um, a little bit different approach, making it smaller, more reasonable numbers for for folks who wanted to enjoy them to kind of, okay, here's a group of four or five or six or whatever to persevere through and, and get going. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes a little bit easier than if you're dealing with the whole thing as a single Absolutely. person. Mm-hmm. For sure. How did you get them going, Keith? Did you have to use lizards or? No. Um, I, I had them. I get these shoe boxes from the container store that are actually <clears> like <throat> almost triple in height than a normal shoe box. And I had made little purchases out of coat hangers. And what I found is, and this is all stuff that Rob has taught me, but what I found was like if I take, um, if I take, uh, toilet pisher, uh, rolls, the toilet paper rolls and I punch them down flat and give them these tight crevices to get into and I stack a whole bunch of them up and then I'll put a typical hide over top of that. And they really seem to, during the day, get into those cracks and crevices and feel nice and tight and secure. And if you go in at night and you turn the light on, they're all up in the branches, you know? So all I was doing, all I did the first time and all three of them ate right away for me was uh, I just dropped a live pinky in just before the lights went off while they were still in hiding. Um, and I gave them about two hours and I went down and looked and they had all eaten. Yeah, they just took off like that. So Rob, Rob had told me that these guys can be a little quirky in the way that they like to eat. Like sometimes, and the two that I started with one from Jeff Murray, one from Tom Crutchfield, um, they were just like that. Like I had to give them a pre-killed item. I had to lay it on this piece of cork bark in just the right way. So that when they came out, they ran right into the head and all this like weird stuff um, in the very beginning. And they would eat if I did all that, if I did it in any other way, they wouldn't eat. So it was the weirdest thing. Now they're savages. Now, you know, they're in four foot cages that are tall and they have branches and all the climb on. And I mean, when they see me in the room now, they're just like any other snake coming right for me. I open the door and they're nailing it right off the, the tongs. Um, so, you know, they're typical now, but as neonates and, and even juveniles, they, they were really quirky in the way that they would eat. That's really cool. The other interesting thing from this year was just seeing, so I had the first time that I bred, uh, and this goes back, ties back to your Pulse and I um, breeding experience, Keith, was with a couple, what, I guess now it's going on three or four years ago when I bred Bibrini Australis for the first time. Um, I had also used only a single male, although that male uh, is the largest male that I've ever seen come in. So that might speak to sort of his, uh, capacity, right? As a singular breeder, and, right. you know, as a singular interested breeder or whatever, substantially the largest one that I'd ever seen come in. And the female actually herself was also similarly, probably the longest one that I've seen uh, come in. And I'd had her maybe three or four years at the time then when both uh, the male, maybe a little bit less, but certainly she had had quite a long time. Um, but the interesting thing that I saw in terms of multiple males was uh, I tossed in five different males with her at once, and they didn't compete with one another to breed. They effectively bred in sequence uh, so that one, in terms of one would court her, and as it would get to a state of exhaustion, a second one would kind of pick up where it left off, and this whole process just continued. And I think, um, you know, their size suggests, right, well, size and observations suggest that they don't uh, actively 
compete, compete or combat or whatever. Um, and I think that makes sense, right, relative to their natural history, where I think on the small islands that they occur on at the end of the Solomons, the population must be incredibly dense, given the number that have been imported to the United States. You know, if we're pulling hundreds of snakes off of there, the density must be huge. They're so much smaller than the females that they're presumably never transitioning out of feeding on lizards, whereas the females will get large enough to eat both native and introduced mammals. Um, so we have that uh, niche partitioning within the species. But the point is, I think, essentially, they, in terms of boas, right, we know how much effort there is uh, in a reproductive between courtship and then sort of maybe multiple events over that period of time. It's always framed as not being corn snakes where you toss them together for 10 minutes and that's enough, right? It's, instead, it's a process of weeks and or months. Um, and it's really interesting that, okay, they're not competing. And instead, they're rather than having one presumably equally sized or larger male that then has the energy capacity to, to do all of that because of the resource split uh, between males and females, instead, these males are working together um, so that essentially... They're, they're having to put in that same amount of effort, but they don't have the capacity to do it. So they're doing it communally where one is then sort of stepping in for the next. That's really cool. Yeah, as a biologist, I'm curious what uh, which male is successful there in terms of producing the offspring. Is it the, you know, you often see the final male is the one that actually sires the most. You see in some species, you get a mixing of sperm and therefore you'll get somewhat even contributions across the, the, um, the litters. So it'd be kind of cool to know what what way that uh, what, what how that pans out in those in those species. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So at this point, so I didn't get she developed pretty pretty decently, but there uh, <laughs> it's funny the other trick with probably any candoia, but the one that I've read uh, being Bibrina australis, they I think they develop and hold the females develop and hold large follicles for a really long time so that they. It's a species that's often confused as, are these gravid or are they not gravid? Um, but they look distinctly different. So when they're just sitting on large follicles, they essentially look like a giant sausage. Whereas mm -hmm. when they're actually gravid, maybe so three months post, at least in the instance that I saw, by the time we're three months post ovulation and they go, so, you know, if we're talking 90 days or so, and the litter that I had dropped at 205 days post shed, um, the, as I said, by 90 days, there's no question. It doesn't look the same. They don't look big. They look lumpy and terrible um, so that there's really no question. So if someone said, oh, I have this gravid candelia, and it's like, well, is it uh, eating? If the answer is at all yes, then then you almost certainly don't have a gravid one, at least within the tree boas, because um, on that it was a solid, whatever that is, almost, well, Pre-shed, we're talking genuinely seven, seven and a half months without mm -hmm. a fast associated with the event, plus the the time off food beforehand. Um, and it's not, uh, oh, I just have this sausage of a snake. It's, you have a heavily pyramided, lumpy thing that is obviously distended on, laterally distended and things. So, uh, yeah, just sort of interesting quirks. We'll give them a run again this year and see, see if they go. But I think in the wild, Again, talking about those population densities, I'm suspecting that given the nature of the whole thing, the females are probably only going every four or five years, something like that. So do they look like death after they give birth? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, really, that's a long time without food. From, from perineum and stuff. Yeah, we're talking 10, 
you know, basically 10 months without eating. And then, at least with mine, did not feed immediately after. There had to be a shed like a two weeks, two weeks later to get a shed, and then it would resume eating. So it's a real, it's no surprise that I think they have to get uh, really large, and they, you know, obviously, they're, particularly in the wild, there's a, a big time component to doing that. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. 205 days post-ovulation shed. Crazy, <laughs> yeah, like I think, you know, I think Corrales takes a long time, you know, at about 145, 150 right. days. But, yeah. my God, I don't know if I'd have the patience for that. That's uh, that's incredible. The really hard part was that I, I didn't have any clear guidance on what that would look like, right? Because so many of the litters, it seemed like they were sneaking up on – it wasn't. This was very deliberate, and I sort of was able to watch for signs and have uh, signposts to it, but I then didn't have a sort of normative date to it um, other than, well, she's still alive and doing fine, and I can see sort of the growth and it, it getting worse and worse. She then picked up like a transient, almost vitiligo appearance, maybe two weeks out before she dropped them. I don't know whether that's common or was unique to her or this instance or whatever, but yeah, definitely weird snakes. Very cool. Rob, how were the babies to get going on that? I, I know you, you've talked about it a little bit, but since we're on the subject. Uh, very well, if you were willing to feed them uh, an olus, then they weren't bad at all. They they have a seemingly slow metabolic rate so that they would eat at about a rate of one brown anole a month. Hmm. But I mean they're not they they don't they have neither the length nor the girth of a um pulse and I for sure they're substantially smaller. Yeah. They're That's crazy. Like pens, little yeah. yeah, little pens. That's crazy. Yeah, I think that that's the year that we went to Australia. I was at your place. Was it? Wasn't that the year that she was gravid? Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Wow, very neat. Well, I I, I had a a crazy year um, with snakes. You know, as I mentioned, you know, everything being sparsely fed. Um, I didn't deliberately pair anything. Um, but in my travels back and forward and calling in to check on the animals. You know, I'd call in and I'd run down and check them. And if one of them had defecated I'd, and I didn't have what I needed near me, I would put that in with a different animal and, you know, come back to it and stuff like that and, you know, put them back in their enclosures a couple of hours later. And uh, when I was going to collect my animals in July, you know, I'm bagging everything up or boxing everything up. It's, it's only three hours from, from Blacksburg to Knoxville, so it's not far. Um, but there were three animals that looked four animals that looked noticeably gravid. And I was like, you know, they, in the spring, they, they were maybe fed three times in the, in the six months that they weren't with me, um, literally, truly just maintaining them. And, uh, and when I got them here, you know, and fired everything up, you know, they, of course they went immediately and sat on the heat. Um, and of course, not being there all the time in these back and forth visits, I never saw ovulation, never saw, you know, post ovulation sheds because, you know, Jonathan would go in and remove sheds or whatever. So I, um, I didn't know anything was gravid in that time period. But I, I got home, I got them home and within, I think it might have been a week, 
Um, I've got this Costa Rican black boa, which is the locality form of the leopard. Basically, it's the Costa Rican form of leopard boa. If you breed leopard to Costa Rican black, you get a leopard Costa Rican black boa. It's the same gene, probably just different locality mutations of that. Same as the onyx gene in Honduran boas. Hmm. And I had paired her with a Costa Rican T-positive. And uh, to try and produce, well, I was planning, sorry, to, to pair her with a Costa Rican T-positive. But whenever I was in these back and forth visits, if I was going to move an animal into one enclosure due to cleaning, I would move it into the, into the enclosure of the animal that I did eventually want to breed it with to see if I would see anything. Of course, it was never long enough to see anything. And she was only with that male for a couple of hours. And uh, I got a litter, it was a small litter, it was like 2.2 um one of the females was stillborn and there was like two or three slugs. But the three babies that survived, the 2.1, I was thrilled with because it kind of secures a project that I didn't expect yeah. to do anything with yet. And I didn't, you know, that, same with all, all of my boas. Anytime I have a litter, I basically set them to a side and I don't look at them for about a month. I give them water and change, you know, bedding. And as soon as the month was up, I went in and I offered defrost wrap pinks to each one of them and they all nailed them. You know, and uh, but I was so thrilled with that. I've actually got that pair together again um, this year, uh, and they've been breeding away, which is exciting. Um, I also had a uh, hypomelanistic head anarthristic sonoran boa. So the anarthristic sonoran line originated in my collection about 25 years ago, 24 years ago. Um, and I've sat on that project stupidly over the years and never really developed it further, just due to other things. But I'd I'd, I have an anarthristic leopard male, again, pure Sonoran Sigma, and I'd moved him into her enclosure while cleaning things and stuff like that there. And again, only with her for a couple of hours. Um, maybe maybe that might have been one that was longer, maybe two weeks. And she dropped a litter of five babies and a couple of slugs. And it was, I think it was like three anarthristics, a hypomelanistic, uh, three anarthristic head leopards, a hypomelanistic um Het leopard, head anarthristic, and I don't know, a regular double head. And I was thrilled with that as well. And then I'd had, you know, a couple of years ago, I produced. So I'm really immersed in this Costa Rican T positive project that I've been working on for about 15 or 16 years. And over the years, I've produced all of these different forms that I've never really sold or done anything with. But I've got a hypomelanistic leopard Costa Rican T positive, which is just an animal that looks weird inside of this world. It's the only one on the planet. And I'd put him in with his mother, which was a double head, T-positive leopard, again while cleaning. And it might have been in there for two weeks. And she also dropped a litter. It was a small litter, but it was a Costa Rican T-positive leopard, a pair of leopard head Costa Rican T-positives, and a pair of double or two double head females. Wow. And again, just the, the, the T-positive leopard is just, again, there's only three of those on the planet. And, and I've got, I've, 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 I've produced two of them. And I sold the male a couple of years ago, but I, this is a female and she is just incredible. So those three litters for me was just, these are, they produced animals that I've dreamed of having, Yeah, you know, and I, and I, and it was totally accidental. And then of course, I, I think I'd mentioned before that my Trinidad, one of my Trinidad females, I got a lot of Trinidad tree bows, a lot of Trinidad regime burger eye. And um, I'd said that, one of the females looked gravid because I'd been keeping them in a, in a trio of male and two females. And sure enough, I think it was August or September, maybe September. I, I went into the room and there was uh, nine babies crawling around. Wow. And, and the thing about Trinidad's 
the babies that I've produced are all phenotypically very, you know, they're one and that's it. They're all orange, bright orange. Um, and then they'll change into that kind of gold bronze over the, over, over time, but they shed immediately. So, uh, Jeff Murray had mentioned that part of the group, cause we share this group. Um, he said that in the litter that he produced, he saw, it looked like they were shedding as soon as they were born. Mm-hmm. So I went into that enclosure again. I saw them shedding cause I kept them in that enclosure that they were born in for um, a couple of days with the mother and stuff. And I looked in and there was little shed skins hanging around. So they had literally shed within hours of being produced, yeah. which is really cool. Um, they're the biggest pain in the ass to get feeding. <laughs> and I've produced a decent number of Costa Rican Rischenbergeri and I've produced Venezuelan Rischenbergeri. These, and, and I've got other Trinidad Rischenbergeri that will feed off the bat on scented um, rodents. These things, I've tried all of the usual, you know, the the pink rat that's in, you know, you defrost them in a bag and they get really juicy and warm and then they just, they, they normally can't resist those. No interest, not even a strike. Tried it with pink mice, tried it with fluff mice. I ordered the quail sausages and the lizard sausages from Reptilinx. Didn't even look at those. I ordered the, 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 the anal and the gecko juice from Reptilinx. Didn't look at those. Um, I even ordered um, button quail um, from the, uh, the guy that does the blackheads in Florida, Jason Hood. I ordered, I had to buy a hundred button quail, it's yeah. like 140 bucks to get them shipped. And I thought this is it. Cause everyone tells me that these are, these get anything feeding. Yeah. Didn't even look at them. Um, so literally today I, um, I chopped a bunch of, um, mouse thighs off little rodents and I, you know, I got a, an egg yolk and, and I assist fed eight of these, uh, little Rischenberger. There was nine born, but one of them died overnight unusual i don't know what happened to it um, i actually fed that to one of my redfoot tortoises the next day <laughs> and it yeah, wow. um, yeah. Uh, but yeah so i'm i'm you know they haven't lost any weight they all look great but i just thought it's time to get try and kick in their metabolism and give them if i need to assist feed them a few times maybe that'll get the metabolism going enough yeah. Yeah. to then switch over but um you know it's a pain so whenever whenever Rob said about kind of splitting out his group of seventeen or eighteen babies or whatever, I can understand that. Like I've got eight here, and it really does. It's a pain in the ass, you know. But yeah. uh, hopefully they'll kick in pretty quickly. I've had uh, some Amazon tribos like that. You you force feed them one meal, and it seems to get that metabolism going and everything flowing. And the next time they take it, no problems. So yeah, so it'll be interesting. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll give them five, four or five days. And then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see what they do. I'll try the one on defrost again. I, I need to find a supplier to get live here in Blacksburg. It's not as easy as it was in Tulsa, but I'll, I'll, I will hopefully find some. And then there was the clutch of, of Darwin carpet. So, um, I got some Darwin's from Nick Mutton and Ryan Young, uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, and then I also got some, uh, albino Darwin's and my friend, Jonathan, who was really into snakes back in Northern Ireland. Whenever we met up again, he was not in Knoxville at the time. He was in Texas. He had no snakes. And of course he wanted to see these snakes in, in my house. And I showed them and I kind of, I think that kind of wet the appetite. Yeah. Um, and I could see him in his mind thinking that he wanted to get back into reptiles. And I said, look, why don't you take these four? Why don't you take these four? Cause he's really into carpets. I said, why don't you take these four and just play with them? 
you know, if you breed them, we'll split babies and stuff like that yeah. there. That worked very successfully because he's now got a ton of animals. <laughs> but um, uh, he paired um, a wild-type Darwin to a albino and produced 10 eggs. The female produced 10 eggs. And he didn't have an incubator, so we just thought, why don't we let her maternally incubate? And she went through the whole process. Eight of those eggs hatched. The other two had fully formed babies. Um, but they were right at the bottom of the clutch. Um, but the eight that hatched were just out of this world. And I, I'd heard on um, on Morelia Python Radio about some people having difficulty trying to get Darwin carpets to feed. These eight babies fed within a week or two of each other on defrost um, hopper mice wow. and fluff mice. And it's some it's a it's a weird trade. I've used it with emeralds and I've used it with Amazons and and stuff. It's kind of like Whenever I get the rodent, you know, and I defrost it, and I, it's really warm, and you go into it, and the kind of animal's kind of hesitant. If you kind of breathe on them, I find it's almost as if they think it's a predator, and they strike out. Yeah. The heat signature, and then they bite onto whatever it is, and, and these all did that. They all bit and wrapped and had their meals. So that's awesome. Apparently, apparently, Darwin carpets are just really easy to get feeding compared to what other people <laughs> think. <laughs> there you go. But um, but they they were they were just unexpected litters that were i was really pleased to see and then you know the other thing that i did because the animals were all so sparsely fed in the spring i then put them through a real feeding schedule really heavy feeding schedule from july through to november and i was feeding them every week and that's something i'd never done but you know i wanted to put weight on that they'd lost i wanted to get them into breeding mode um uh, breeding weight and and they all so i spent a lot of money on rodents um between uh, July and, and November, and um, and then I got, and so they're all looking great. I got a lot. I think I got thirteen animal, thirteen pairs together. Um, I can mention those in a minute. But I also got some new animals. I got um, so I've I've got Brazilian rainbow boas, right? But uh, I've always liked Colombian rainbow boas, and I've really liked the T positive Colombians that Brian Sharp produced years and years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember it was either on his website or in Reptiles Magazine. He had a picture of this T-positive Colombian rainbow bow. And I just thought it was really neat. I like T-positive animals in general, but I always thought it was really neat. And Brian was on the original board of directors for US Arc maybe 14 or 15 years ago. And I was on, I've been on it since it formed. But in that first iteration, you know, I got talking to Brian and, and we, I met him up at one of the Tinley shows and he brought one of these T-positive females with him or males with him. And I just thought it looked incredible. I think at the time it was like $5,000 or $7,000 or something. So I wasn't going to be buying it at that time. Um, but in the back of my mind, I've always been thinking about these T-positive yeah. Colombian rainbow boas. And a friend of mine posted some in, in August, I think it was August, September. He had a pair and I just, you know, did one of these stupid kind of late evening texts like, hey, you know, what are you looking for those? And he said, to you, this price. And I was like, oh, God. So I ended up buying. <laughs> and by the time I woke up the next morning, I'd also bought a pair of T-negative albinos, a pair of anarthristics. <laughs> um, I bought uh, patternless and, and a hypomelanistic. So yeah. I'd immersed myself in the Colombian rainbow bow project. Oh, wow. Um, and I was like, what have I done? But I've always, I've always really liked them, you know, yeah. and they're, you know, it's not something I ever want to try plan to make money from, but I just think they're really cool little animals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got into those and then, um, I picked up another, uh, a, f- a female, um, caramel Sumatran short tail 
So I, uh, a number of years ago, Tracy Barker gave me a pair, but the female was a parthenogen and parthenogenetic snakes in general just don't do very well. Right. Um, and the female ended up after about a year, it did to what typical parthenogens do and it rolled over and died. So I had this male that I've kind of been maintaining and I'd actually spoke to a bunch of people and offered this male to people on just long-term breeding loan. Just take it. And if you breed it, you know, throw me some babies, that kind of thing. Uh, and nobody kind of ever came back to me saying yes. So I thought, right, well, I'll hold on to it and I'll eventually pick up a female. So um, I did. I picked up a female uh, recently from my friend Michael Ogle, who's a zookeeper at, at Knoxville Zoo, and he produced um, some. And uh, so I got a, a baby female caramel python curtis from him, which is kind of cool. Um, and then I, I just bought more Antaresia. I don't know what's wrong with me, why I've bought these horrendously vicious little animals <laughs> but i end up getting a bunch more anteresia as well you know some of the, the more children's pythons where'd so you get that uh, from so i got some het tea positives from nick mutton nice uh, and then i've got granites and stripes from ryan young and then i was given a pair of patternless children's um and then i was given a pair of sp adult spotted pythons as well because they were just uh, they were too vicious to be used in any kind of um, uh, outreach programs that they had originally been purchased for. Uh -huh. So they kept biting people. And uh, yeah. so they gave them to me. And, oh, yeah, look, whenever, of course, whenever I got them, I took them out of the bags. They were fine. They were great. And I put them into the tubs and stuff. And a few weeks later, you know, I was feeding them. And a few weeks later, my friend Jonathan was up. Uh, and he's checking out the snakes when I was in Tulsa. And I said, yeah, look at these children and spotters. And I reached out for the tubs and I reached in to pick out one each because they were so placid. And they both latched onto me <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that wasn't a fun evening. I got bitten by those and also by Brazilian rainbow boas. And I never oh. get bitten by animals. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. There's something about those. They're just fun and funny little animals, you know, they're kind of cool. But they are just, yeah. they're, they're complete jerks, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, And I want to get, get some of these pygmy pythons uh, michael ogle uh, when i was at his house a couple of months ago he uh had said i'd said about this trio of pygmy pythons that i'd seen on morph mark and i was thinking about it. he goes oh yeah i saw them as those as well i'm thinking about them and i thought all right well here we go and a week later he sent me a message to say that he bought them nice. so um uh, and i've seen them and they're wonderful so i'll i'll be able to get babies from him you know nice. i'll let him i'll let him get them established yeah, <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then i'll go for those but yeah it's uh it's funny because being away from animals in a constant kind of basis um, for six months meant that whenever I got them back again, it was like I just started again. It was a whole yeah. new, fresh kind of lease of life. And, and, and I've just been really immersed, you know, back in them, which has been fantastic. So I, you know, I've said I've got a bunch of animals breeding. I, I've got a Brazilian rainbow boa that's in her post ovulation shed, um, which is cool. I produced from her two years ago. I think it was. 15 or 16 babies so i'm looking forward to breeding those again they were really fun really cool. hog islands are going crazy you know? yeah so i so here, here's what I, also what i did differently i've always had my breeding formula and that is stop feeding uh november uh, the uh, beginning of november november 1st and then um introduce animals start cooling and then introduce animals january um first but i don't i don't cool them um, in that i'm starting cooling it's just they not the room naturally cools down and that's why I worked in, in Raleigh and that's why I worked in Tulsa, just in the rooms that they were in, they naturally cooled. Mm -hmm. So by the time it went from November to January 1st, 
you know, they'd gone through that decline. So they were getting into the low seventies, um, at night, maybe like 72, 73 at night at the cool end of the enclosure, but they still had a hot spot. The difference now is that owning this kind of, um, house that is, you know, high spec in terms of it, the rooms are, they'll, they stay warm yeah. and, you know, hard, hard to cool them, especially in a basement, which is submerged. It's, it's, it's a walkout basement, but that, that, that is, it's a warm room. So I've had to start using the temperature cycling kind of programs on my, on my herb stats. So I've been cooling them down. Um, but, but November 1st, I started cooling down to, I think over the space of about two weeks down to 72 at night, um, for about five hours or six hours. And I extended that as, as it's gone along. Um, but what I also did was I, I then put all of my animals together in their pairs at that point in time. I'd normally waited these two months, but I just thought, you know, we're moving to a different climate. We're moving from sea or sea level essentially to 2000 feet. You know, I just don't know what these animals are going to do and I don't want to miss, you know, an ovulation or, or a right. pre-ovulation build. So I just put them together. And of course, for the first, for November and, and most of December, they did nothing. You know, the pair would, would wrap tails and stuff like that there. But literally in the last week, everything's been going at it. The only animals that are yet to start breeding are my Boa Sigma. And they're yeah. paired, but hog islands are going crazy. All of my Costa Rican tea positive projects are all breeding. Um, my uh, my Antaresia projects, they've been breeding from like put them together. They were actually like corn snakes. You know, whenever you put corn snakes together yeah. for the first time, they go straight at it. Right. The Antaresia did that. Um, uh, so it's been fun. I, I haven't um, paired any trebos this year um, for a couple of reasons, and I'll mention that as well. So, uh, you know, I've got these anaconda phase wild caught emeralds I've, I've had them for three years just exceptional animals the, the females eat large adult rats you know every three weeks male eats medium rats they're just phenomenal i've had them together prior to uh, last year and they showed no no interest in breeding i thought well they're wild caught it'll take time i moved them into the into the new room got them all set up um and they fed and then about two weeks later the female started showing signs of respiratory infections which was mm -hmm. unusual because they hadn't been in you know they've been kept in the same conditions at my friend's house they'd had the humidity they'd had the heat they'd but they both of them and then the male then also kicked in as well they just those three animals just kicked in respiratory infections to the point that within a, the space of about 10 days, two weeks, the females were visibly drooling. Wow. Like, it was crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And I thought, right, well, I need to find a vet for this here. And part of me started thinking, you know, I think a lot of animals with respiratory infections die because of stress um, from, from being pulled out and taken to vets and stuff like that. Yeah. So I thought, I'm going to try something different. I had some antibiotics that I that I've used in the past, and I shot them up with those. The females continued to eat, even while showing really heavy respiratory infections. I bumped the heat of the enclosures, and within about three weeks, the respiratory infections were gone. And what the biggest female stopped feeding, and she stopped feeding from August through to about a month ago. And I was getting a bit worried, not that she wasn't, lo she wasn't losing weight, but that she wasn't feeding. And then I, I, I was defrosting a bunch of things, and I had a small mouse 
or no, I had adult mouse, and I and I picked it up and thought, oh, I'll see if this will get her interested. I am that inclusion. She nailed that thing so hard, and she's never had a mouse with me in the three years that I've had her. Yeah. And then I followed it immediately with a small rat, and then a week later she took another small rat, and then a week later she took another. She went back onto large rats, and she's been fine ever since. Hmm. And the others are the same, the male and then the other female, they're all, they went through this little weird phase of a really heavy respiratory infection. And then it cleared up, you know, hmm. I gave them shots. I think it was three shots each, um, uh, of Thailand 200. And I had Batril as well that I was going to use if it didn't work, but it was amazing that whole process, no other animal in the same include in the same setups, showed any signs of respiratory infection, no other emerald, um, no other corallus or anything, but just those three. Hmm. They get the puffy throat. They they got the puffy throat, yeah. But I'll send you a picture, but it was crazy that, because I spoke to a friend of mine who's a vet in Knoxville, and I sent her a picture and I said, look, you know, I don't want to bring these snakes into the vet because I think that whole process is going to be stressful enough on them and I might lose them as a result. Um, And... You know, he went through a process and I got prescribed some antibiotics that I never actually needed to use. Um, but that was crazy. I just thought, I'm going to lose these animals that I've had for three years and have done yeah. so well. Right. Because they went from perfect to looking like they're on death's door within a couple of weeks, and yet we're still feeding. Yeah. And then within four weeks, they were back on and, and straight away they were they did, did great again. But I, I just, it just shows you how sensitive wild-caught emeralds are yeah oh without a doubt know? yeah and, and it, it's just it's um just a they're just another animal it's a different level on their on their own you know and yeah. it shows you the the significance of stress on them just the stress of because they hadn't developed respiratory infections in the six months they were at my friends it was just you know there was a three i picked back them up and i drove them three hours in the summer and put them into their enclosures that were all set up and sitting at i keep my emeralds at 85 degree ambient mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, as they've always been, and uh, within and they fed within two weeks, they just developed respiratory, yeah. which is just crazy. Yeah. But um, so therefore, that that's knocked out my kind of emerald breeding for this year. The other thing that did my my old, I had I had a male Rico Walder produced um, emerald male that I'd used for 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 most of the litters of emeralds that I produced, and he finally had got to the end of his life. He was. 19 or 20 or something like that there wow. and uh yeah and uh and this year so he would go off feed for the summer every year and then he'd kick back in you give him an adult mouse and then he'd kick back into small rats but right this year he just he just wouldn't kick back in again and uh i'd seen him last year i thought he's he's looking i don't think i'm going to breed him again but um but this year he he just kind of that was it no more so i'm on the lookout for a for a female for a male emerald because i've got females that are there and yeah. My, my other, the other males that I've got are young. They're, they're going to be three or four years before they really are up to breeding size. Right. Right. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was definitely, you know, the, the rigmaroles of, of emerald tree boas, you know, everything does so well and then they can, yeah. they can switch, but, but it, but it, it yeah, I'm not, I'm not recommending people that if they get respiratory infections in any of their animals, that they don't take them to vets. I was in the process of working with a vet. Um, but, uh, and I was going to bring them to the vet. But um, they then they they reverted and, and they were back on back on track, right? You know. So, but it's it's been a it's been certainly been a, a crazy year, you know. So, so what about next year? What are your plans? Or next year? It's, it, this is next year. What, is, what are your yeah. What are your plans for twenty twenty four? For me, 
Um, I have different pythons I'm going to breed. Um, I have some colubrids that will be a first for me. I have some Kingsville red bull snakes that, uh, are in hibernation right now. And I have some of the, um, Mexican milk snakes. Um, so those are in hibernation right now. So those will be two new species of colubrids for me. So I'm going to give them a go. Um, Sanzini, I got two pairs that are together right now and I've gotten like countless numbers of locks. I mean, I think Sanzini male would literally go for once mature and all, they'll go for a female anytime you put them together. They're just typically like that, the males. Um, but this year after talking with Paul and Bill Hughes a little bit and all, I, 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 we, you know, there's with the green Sanzini is a lot of people, um, We'll have weak litters and all. So we're kind of round tabling and, and Paul and, 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 um, Bill were both saying maybe we should put the males together later after a longer cool down. So I did that this year. I waited an extra month and a half probably before I started introductions. Um, and had them right now, they're only getting a basking spot periodically throughout the day. They're typically right now at, 65 to 70 degrees and a basking spot will come on in the cages for uh, an hour and then go off for five hours and then come on for an hour and then go off and come on one more time before the lights are out at night. And I never see them even go for the basking spot even when it comes on. So they're right now they've been basically at 65 to 70 degrees. The ambient in the cage goes up a little bit when the uh, basking light comes on, but they don't use it. Um, and the males, like I say, you know, I can go down on one day and they're all locked up and then two, three days are not. And then you go down again and the males locked up again. So a lot of breeding going on, um, with them. So, I'm- so that, so that, that's an interesting kind of comment in that, you know, the weak litters. So you, you were introducing pairs pretty early in the season and then taking yeah. them through the cooling. So yep. the reason, and they were breeding at that yes. point, as soon as you put them together. Yeah. So, that's interesting because what I find with boas in general is that they are terrible at storing sperm. Yeah. Pythons tend to be really good at storing sperm. You know, I know that there's certain, you know, reports of blood pythons storing sperm and using it successfully three years after mating. Yeah. I've had and it. We've seen it with, we've seen it with ball pythons multiple years. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got genetic studies where I've shown rattlesnakes storing sperm and utilizing it multiple times over mm-hmm. seven years yeah. to produce healthy offspring. Boas in contrast, seem to be terrible at it but the difference with boas is that they tend to have this really prolonged courtship process before ovulation kicks in right um, snakes produce sperm once a year well depending on the species will produce sperm once a year and once they use it up that's it it's done right 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 they'll still breed but it's gone that's why pairing a single male to multiple females really doesn't work very well with right. boas and i'm curious with sanzinia then if that early pairing resulted in those males u- using up that sperm and that sperm, the quality of it just degrading over that period before the female actually was ready to ovulate. Hence the reason getting either slugs or, or, or weak offspring. Yeah. That's that, that's kind of what Paul and, and Bill were worth thinking. And um, so I think Bill is trying it. Bill's having a hard time getting cool temperatures. It sounds like this year is, just not, uh, he's in a zone right now where it's just not getting any cool down out there. Um, That's the problem with living in Vegas. That's yeah. one of the problems with living in Vegas. <laughs> exactly. 
But uh, for me, you know, I, I can start cooling animals in September. Um, but I didn't even start putting them together until uh, like beginning of December this year. So, so when um, do you start seeing ovulation? Um, you know, I, they, they do get a thick and hardness tone, but man, they, the, they get so hormonally dark. Uh, and, right, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And unlike like Corallus, well, Hortolinus <laughs> anyway, like once they get dark, they tend to stay dark, but, mm-hmm. but the, um, Sanzinia, they'll, they'll lighten up again. Like after a uh, couple sheds after they've had the babies, they, they don't go back to this vibrant of a green as they had, but they definitely lighten up from that. They get almost black, you know, sometimes. Yeah. So, um, so I almost look for that more than getting in there and kind of palpating them. Stuff. Yeah, sure. If I start seeing that hormonal darkness, I know I'm on the right track. That's awesome. Them, so, yeah. So, the, <laughs> On a totally different spectrum, one of the things I'm super excited about is my Lanthanotis. Yeah, um, they look cool. <laughs> they are so cool. I'm like totally, totally just drawn to those animals. Just everything about having a totally naturalistic setup that's just enjoyable to look at. And then these little creatures that, you know, act like a giant Komodo dragon or water monitor or even a Gila, you know. Um, so everything about them is just really drawn to me and, and I, I breed my own earthworms for them. It's so easy. You yeah. can get these, yeah. you get these kits and the, the red European night crawlers don't need to be that cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just put table scraps in there and, you know, feed them and, and it's just reproduce. I don't have to buy mice. I don't have to buy <laughs> anything, you know? <laughs> And, and they're, they're savages on, uh, on the earthworms and I have little fish in there. They don't bother them at all. Um, but man, you drop one earthworm in and as soon as they sense that they're out and they're hunting and they're working their tongue underwater, just like a regular monitor. So, so you've got, you have three of them. Is that right? I have a trio right now. Yeah. And I have prospects for a couple more coming my way. So, um, are they easy to sex? Yeah. Well, they, they are, once you get an eye for it, the, the male's head and neck is noticeably bigger, even at a young age than, uh, than a comparable sized female. Um, and it's pretty accurate. Um, and these guys were pretty small when I got them, but they grow pretty, pretty good. I feed them every other day and they're, they're, you know, chow hounds. Um, but, uh, I'm hoping to get them up to size possibly for, Possibly this spring, but hopefully for sure by next year they'll be up to size. So that that'll be really cool. cool. That'll be yeah, and just everything about learning about them is really cool. So yeah, the whole story behind them, you know, whenever they were really found and, and how they've been found in the wild, yeah, it's crazy. And and then seeing pictures coming from Europe, you know, of of eggs being laid in enclosures, and it's yeah. really neat. You know, I remember yeah. you've always remembered it just a handful of years ago. I think it was one of the, or the first breedings in captivity. And, uh, and you saw this handful of babies and they look just spectacular, yeah. you know, yeah, really cool. Yeah. I, I give them uh, the land <laughs> section. I give them a, uh, it's about a six to eight inch layer of earth substrate. And I have live plants and I've cork bark and they love to go into the cork bark, but they actually dig tunnel tubes in that substrate. And, you know, I'm going to say every two months I'll go into the tank, make, I'll pull them all out just to make sure everybody's looking good. I do water changes and stuff, but other than that, I kind of leave them alone. But I'll stick my finger in the entrance hole 
and you can follow it because they compact that tube all the way down to their little chamber to find where they are in the land section, you know. But there's earthworms that actually are living in that substrate. And one animal in particular um, likes to be up on the land a lot more than the other two. And I think it's, I, I would like to know from somebody else if they know, because they typically seem to feed in the water. But this animal that spends more time on land seems to be growing and doing just as well as the other animals. So I don't know if when they're digging these burrows, they come across the earthworms that are in there and, and are eating them in there. But yeah, it's definitely putting on size and everything. So that'd be kind of cool to figure out eventually. But yeah, yeah I, heard, I heard there were some daytime um, here. Yeah, actually, the guy that I got mine from, uh, he had uh, so he had an adult pair there. Actually, uh, those are really cool to check out to see, you know, an actual an adult animal. And then uh, somebody else had uh, a couple of babies on their table. Yeah. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I'd like to see those in the flesh. Yeah, who'd ever thought, right, in our lifetime? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we had we thought about that for a lot of different species that we, I, I never thought we'd see Trinidad trebles again and captivity exactly, and, and yeah. there we are you know same thing with you know hopefully we will see you know boa nebulosa and boa rufius at some point again yeah. but uh, yeah some of these species it's just they're, they're just disappearing yeah so, yep for sure and you've got your hog islands uh, breeding. i got my hog islands breeding i have a, a new pair of guiana that are together but last year they didn't even start getting they're together and just like last year they were together same with the argentines I, I put them together. My pattern is exactly what you were saying earlier. Um, but I didn't even see them start locking up and breeding till February last year. So mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure, you know, this pair that's together right now will probably be doing the same, same thing. So excited to see what these babies will look like if that is successful. Um, and then, uh, I, I had sent you some pictures and Rob some pictures on the side. Um, our dear friend, John Martin as you know, is entering a stage of his life where he needs to take care of himself a little bit more than the animals. So um, he's dispersed his collection amongst friends and he kept a pair of basins for himself, which I'm glad uh, that he's gotten from Ed um, to give him something to maintain that he's able to handle. But um, I got a pretty decent little collection of um, the Amazon tree boas that John's working with. Some of the animals he had gotten originally from me, so I got some of those animals back. Um, and then some of the offspring that he's produced from those animals along the way. So I'm back in the Amazon <laughs> tree boa. And uh, a couple of the animals are actually, I'm going to, you know, let them be a little established here a little bit and feed them a couple times. But there's uh, one pair in particular I'll probably put together in the next month or so and see if anything comes of that because typically... I don't see um, the females actually ovulating for me anyway until around um, March or April anyway. So that's yeah. I, I've bred I've bred Amazons maybe twenty five times, and uh, it's been around March April that I've that I've seen ovulation and births in September. Yeah, that's always yeah. my way too. So yeah. yeah, so I'll probably put this one pair together and uh, see what happens there, and the other ones uh, just keep raising up and. And down the road, I guess I'll be having more little Amazons to start. <laughs> yeah, they're always they're always fun. I, I always find Amazons easy to start for me. I just used um, live hopper mice, or else superheated, 
you know, warm hopper mice. Yeah. And, uh, and that was the thing. If you offered them pink mice, there was no interest. Yeah. But it, it was the, the hopper mice were large enough to hold that heat signature. And, uh, and they did, they did great with them. You know, I, I've got a pair I'm going to put together in, um, in probably in, in February. Um, I'm just busy feeding up the female a bit more. She's a tiger female. I'm going to pair mm-hmm. her to a leopard male. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll see. I've only got a small group of, of Portlandia. Now I, I used to have a lot. I used to have nearly fifty when I was back in Ireland. Yeah, um, I love those things. But just um, other Corallus have taken their place yeah. for me. Right. Um, but I, 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 and I keep looking out for females for nice, you know, adult females. And I rarely buy adult animals. Right. But I, I find Amazon settling pretty quickly. And they do, are, right? Yeah, yeah. like corn snakes kind of thing. Yeah. You know, they got a faster metabolism and. And they all just seem to do well. So I keep looking out for the right animal. Um, right. And uh, maybe I'll add another couple this year. Yeah. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> and the la- last thing I'm kind of toying with, um, I don't, I, I, I wish uh, Rob could put eyes on my pair of Jamaican bows because I think they have the age, um, but I don't know if they have the size. They're, they're such a slow growing animal, but I did put them together. Um, I don't see a lot of activity the male seems to be in a hide box a lot and the females out and about um, a lot more. Um, and I added the male actually to the female's cage. Um, but I don't see any uh, copulation or any courtship. They seem to be on opposite ends. So I'll probably wind up just separating them and continue feeding them and maybe try them again next year. Mm-hmm. That's cool. about it. Yeah, That's about all of it. Yeah. Uh... They're very, they're spring breeders. So okay. Prob- that could at least be part of your issue is that both the Puerto Rican boas and Jamaican boas tend to, bre- they start breeding, they show a clear desire to breed and to march into the beginning of the Okay. Fall. All right. And then they're like right on point so that they'll ovulate in May and the babies are born between, in the first half of September. That's sort of okay. the time frame I've had on all of them. So do you wait, Rob, until they're actually in the spring mode before you even start putting them in, in together? Yeah, they'll be cruising around like crazy. Okay. Yeah, so maybe I'll separate them and get a little couple more meals in them and uh, wait till March and give it a, give it a go. That's, 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 yeah, that's probably about it for me this year. Yeah. That's still a, a nice group of, of animals to to breed or to attempt to breed anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. What about you, Rob? Have you got any, any big plans for the for the twenty twenty four season? Not particularly in terms of the captive stuff. I based on the timing and how this usually goes, I'll probably have a litter of Puerto Rican boas. Um, just very much uh, every other year producers in terms of the females and stuff, so I anticipate she'll wanna go. If she doesn't I'm uh you know, not put out by it, but they really seem tied into that sort of uh, 24-month cycle. So I anticipate mm-hmm. that'll be the case there. I guess a shot at Australis, running through that again. This year doesn't feel particularly promising for that, but you never know. Um, my big, big big ticket item in terms of a goal actually will be uh, trip scheduled to find, hopefully, find both rosy and rubber bows in the wild. So mm-hmm. that's really... That would be uh, my success for this year if I could pull that off. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I, I, I've i never owned rosy boas or rubber boas, but I really like rosy boas. 
you know i've uh i think if i hadn't have gotten the uh the colombian rainbows i might have picked up some rosy boas because they, they just look, a, a, look like a lot of fun to keep yeah. yeah i've had quite a few they're very cool they actually are really similar both in the positive and negative ways to anteresia that you were talking through before um mm-hmm. they uh the in the wild purportedly they they don't bite well um captive ones definitely everything i think because they're <laughs> so thigomorphic and just uh tactile to you know anything's potentially a food item that's touching them or whatever um mm-hmm. living in uh in and under rocks and things um so they can kind of do that same thing well uh potentially bite the hand holding them and stuff which is relatively rare yeah maybe i will get some at some point so the only one thing i also did pick up this year i got some colubrids as well and i picked up um a pair of portal road um desert kings so um a number of years ago i was in uh, in at the uh, chiricahua desert museum uh, working with Bob Ashley and my friend Gordon Shewitt, and we were planning this biology of snakes meeting we had. This might have been 2016, and uh, it was October. It was about 64 degrees out, and we were driving up Portal Road from the museum right up Portal Road to go to, to Bob's house. And uh, we saw a couple of atrox on the road, and we saw some desert kings, and they looked just like the little blackheads, right? Blackheaded pythons. Yeah. And I just thought those are so cool, and uh, and I had the opportunity to get some that Gary Sipperly bred uh, this year. Um, so my buddy Gordon sent them to me, and uh, they're awesome. They're just such fun little snakes. You know, I haven't had king snakes in I don't know twenty seven or twenty eight years, so it's fun to have have those again. Oh no, well I did have a I had a Brooks King for a long time, but it was just like kind of the garbage system that I had for. Uh, for any deformed babies that were born or slugs that were produced, yeah, and uh, and I ended up um, giving that to a friend in Oklahoma a few years ago, and um, just whenever things were getting kind of crazy. But um, so it's really cool to have those again. They're they're a lot of fun, you know. So I yeah. think whenever you mentioned the the the, the bull snakes, you know, I, I had to, that that made me remember those little guys as well. Yeah, so yeah. What, what what about last year? Was there anything you saw in other people's kind of? collections that kind of really made you go wow these are these are really neat anything that stands out for the year hmm. man when you've been in the game as long as me it's hard to get that wow factor anymore because everything you know i i appreciate every animal out there like you're saying from a common king snake from an animal to anything you know so i love it all um but uh hmm, i'm trying to think if there's anything out there that Kind of really just blew me away. I'll tell you, our zoo really blew me away. I haven't got there yet. That. Yeah, that really that, yeah. blew me away. I like, need to like, get there. Yeah. Um, I want to visit Ty's place, too, down in uh, Florida. Iguana, I've been like, there, and I'm going it. there again this summer. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. What do you think? Is it just – yeah. Well, so we um, – I was in Port Charlotte, uh, which is, you know, 20, 20 minutes from uh, from his uh, his reptile zoo. And, uh, and I decided to take my nephew and my brother-in-law to go down and, and scoot around and have a look at it. And the day we went, well, it's Florida and it was August and it was so hot, and humid and miserable. My nephew and my brother-in-law weren't the most thrilled at walking around and seeing a bunch of animals, but I was, I thought it was really good. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, I didn't, you know, ask if Ty was there because you know he said he said before to let him know if if uh, if he's if if I ever go there, right. he'd show me around. But I, I will this time. Um, but it, it was fun. It was definitely you know it's a fun um, it's a fun little place to go to. There's, and it's they were constantly building new enclosures whenever I was there, so they're obviously clearly expanding. Right. Um, lots of neat animals, both inside and outside. Um, and it's cool to see a lot. There was a lot of turtles and stuff, but it's great to see them in naturalistic, natural yeah. enclosures and them doing what they what they should be doing. You know, which right. is really really neat. You know, I'm really into tortoises and turtles, so it was fun to see those. But yeah. I, I really want to get to um, uh, Ari and, and Quetzal's um, zoo, and I, I was planning to when I lived in Tulsa because at that point it was only going to be like a seven or eight hour drive to get right. there. Right. And and I had a project with um, Quetzal. Um, that we've been going on for the last couple of years. The paper came out this year. It was about parthenogenesis and yeah. um, American crocodiles. Right. So I've got, I still have the um, embryo of the parthenogenetic crocodile in my freezer. I've actually got it here. I'm, I, I'm in my office at my lab at the moment, sitting in the freezer. So I want to bring that down because we we talked about putting together a, a, an exhibit, you know, a, a display, you know, the whole story and stuff like wow. that there. So that'll give me an excuse to get down there. Um, because I've heard it's just exceptional, and, yeah. and Ari's such a great guy as well. And, and I've seen the pictures that he's been posting on on Instagram and Facebook, and it just looks out of this world. Yeah, yeah, and and they have animals mm-hmm. off 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 display that are just as cool as the animals are, that are on display. But one thing I really like is they have a mixture of turtles, lizards, and snakes all in the same exhibit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I find that really cool that, you know, they take species from the same area that obviously don't predate on each other, but, you know, they have that um, going on in there that you can watch, a, you know, lizard over here chasing a roach or yeah. whatever, and the turtle swimming after a little fish or whatever yeah. in the same exhibit. It's really cool. But I keep saying, you know, it's a place where the animals don't even know they're in captivity. They definitely, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's just amazing. Uh, if you're a reptile geek in any way, shape or form, you definitely need to hit it up and check it out because, yeah, Teresa and I spent a lot of time in there just walking around. You know, it was nice because Ari was still and Quetzal were still in um, heavy construction mode on part of it, still fiberglassing going on and stuff while we were there. Um, but we would just wander and just sit in front of exhibits and you could stare at them for 20 minutes and see something new every time, you know, you looked in a new nook or cranny. So, and they're finding, they're starting to find babies now, species. In the cool. exhibits, you know, they, uh, they're uh, crocodile tegu. They found oh, some neat. babies yeah. in that. Yeah, so so that's really cool that they're just reproducing, you know, laying the eggs in the proper spot, and they're actually hatching or giving live birth in uh, in these displays now. So, that's yeah, really cool, cool things going on, for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd always hope to get to Quetzal's place whenever he owned it in Costa Rica, in yeah. Park Reptilandia. Yeah. And... Um, you know, because I, in my former position at the University of Tulsa, I taught a tropical biology course in Costa Rica every every fall. So I was there for about ten days over Thanksgiving, and uh, I'd always hoped that at some point in time I could prolong the trip for a day or two because it's in a different part of Costa Rica. But at least if we got to San Jose, I could then head up and at least see that for a day and then head back again. But it was just too difficult. Whenever you're bringing students with you, and you know you. You've you got to have a couple of faculty members there looking after students just to make sure they don't do anything crazy. So right. I never got to, um, and I always regretted that because 
uh, our Costa Rican Rushenbergeri, they would have came from Park Reptilandia. Yeah. Right. And so it would have been cool to see the stuff that they had going on there. And, and I, I've seen on, on Instagram that they are just about to reopen because, you know, um, Quetzal sold that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I see it's just about to reopen. So I'm, I'm hoping at some point to, to make an excuse to get down to Costa Rica yeah. to, uh, to see that. Cause I, I was just talking to a faculty member here a couple of days ago and, Virginia Tech's incredible in that they they offer support for developing new courses. And we talked about this idea of developing a tropical biology course again in Costa Rica, but going to multiple different locations instead of what we did before, which was just going to one side. And that would give me an excuse to also get over and look around that area and yeah. maybe get to uh, get to the park Rep- Reptilandia there as well. So that would that would be a lot of fun. But speaking of of zoos, I got to go behind the scenes at um the uh, Virginia Zoo with Dennis. With, with Dennis, so yeah. I um I bought. Great guy. Uh, I've, I've we've interacted in the past. Uh, never met him. I, I met him at Tinley. I can talk about Tinley in a minute. But he posted um, a number of PVC three foot enclosures. Remember from the PVCcages dot com yeah. yeah. that he was looking to sell. And I said, look, I don't have the money right now, but I would have the money after Tinley. And uh, and he said, look, I'll hold them for you. And he did, and and I was heading to Virginia Beach to give a lecture at a, at a meeting um, just a few weeks ago, and um, and Dennis was like, Warren, well, just let me know whenever you want to meet up for the cages, and if you've got time, I'll show you around the zoo. So I was able, he showed me around the reptile kind of um, exhibits and, and everything was there, which, and there was a lot of really cool things, you know. Yeah. The, uh, but the thing that really got me, have you been to that zoo? No, but I, I talk to Dennis almost daily. I love, he sends me videos of everything. Ask him to send you a video with something relating to size of their annulated tree boas. They are the biggest annulated tree boas I have ever seen really? in my life. They are bigger than my biggest emerald tree boas. Wow. And they're beautiful ones, too. They're I've seen phenomenal. Yeah. They're absolutely phenomenal. And he said... You know, they, they, they produce, they drop 17 or 18 babies. Yeah. But they just stop breeding them because other zoos don't want them. Right. And it breaks my heart because he's like, yeah, this last litter, we had like 17 orange and one brown. It's yeah. like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but he is such a nice guy. Yeah, so knowledgeable. And, uh, and he is. And he, you know, he took, t- you know, was, I was there for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, and he took that time out and showed me through the entire collection behind the scenes and in front of it. And that is a really great reptile exhibit that he has helped develop. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and they're looking to expand it. And 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 just a super nice guy. You know, I uh, I really really enjoyed meeting him. And it was funny. You know, we ended up, you know, we loaded the stuff into my truck, and we got chatting about other things. And one of the things that he showed me was these. Um, you know, I really like Sumatran short-tailed pythons. And back in Northern Ireland, I had a pair that were almost jet black with like red eyes, orange red yeah. eyes. And I said, I would love to get another pair. Like yeah, yeah. And, and he had showed me, he had said that he's got a, a female, because he was asking if I knew anybody selling any, and I think like, I don't at the moment, because um, he had lost his male, I think, and he's got an adult female that's like ready to breed, or maybe he had lost his female and he's looking for an adult female, one of the two. Um, but he showed me pictures of some of his, and I said, you know, Dennis, I, I messaged you like a couple of years ago to see if you wanted to take this male caramel Sumatran for breeding and goes, oh yeah, I would now. And I said, literally a week ago, I just bought a female. If you had <laughs> came to me, if you had said that two weeks ago, I would have sent this to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's, but man, those annulateds. Yeah. It, it's, I've got annulated tree boas 
I've got a lot of Corallus species and I've got annulateds and mine are just like my Amazons, you know, they'll eat small rats and I, you know, I don't push them. Seeing the size of the ones that he had there literally stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. Cause I was looking in, I was like, I was like, I was like, is that it? I was like, is that a Western Sanzinia? Is that it? Cause they're all like in yeah. tubes, you know, the way they, yeah, yeah. Like, they really are secretive. And I was like, that's not, a, that's an, that's an annulated tree boa. And, and he goes, Oh yeah, that's our annulated. And I was like, how did they get so big? <laughs> He goes, I don't know, you know, just feed them and they are enormous and they're not, you know, it's like they've grown in proportion. It's not, you know, there's no yeah. scales or just, you know, you don't see skin in right. between the scales. Just the biggest annulated tree boas I've ever seen in my life. That's so it cool. Blew me away. Just absolutely I've seen away. Pic- I've seen pictures of them and the babies and the offspring that they produce and all that, but I've never got the 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 proportional size picture that I say. It's like a shit, can of Coke. Big. Wow, it's wow. literally like a can of like a like a Pepsi bottle sitting beside. Uh, wouldn't be far off the, the girth of them. It blew my. It just it blew me away. I'm gonna hit him up after this show. And tell him to send sure. pictures. Send, yeah, get pictures <laughs> like of him holding them or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they've, they've got a couple of male babies from them in the back that are that are really nice. But the ones that are on display, the adults, my yeah. goodness, they're just so just cool. enormous. And oh, I think they cool. had them in an enclosure with. Uh, it might have been in an enclosure with an, either an Amazon basin or a northern emerald. Right. I was asking if he'd ever seen any any cording or anything from them, yeah. but he hadn't. Right. But uh, yeah, so that you know, that was, seeing that this year, um, kind of was just like my wow, holy cow! You know, yeah, I need I need cool. to maybe think about feeding my annulators more. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, actually yeah. need to, I need to pick up a male annulated. I I lost my male annulated a couple of years ago, and I just haven't got around to picking up another one. So I need to I need to pick up a male because my females are not. The color, you know, they're the orange or anything, but they're right. they've got lots of white on their sides. Yeah, yeah. You know, that calico kind of looks. So they're they're pretty neat. So the other thing I thought I'd mention, and maybe you can you can um, talk about this as well. You know, I went to Tinley this year in October for the first time in I think twelve or thirteen years. We had a U.S. Arc board meeting there, so I, I flew in for that. I know that you had the Daytona, so it'd be neat for you to kind of tell us about that. But um, you. Tinley was interesting in, you know, the size. Anybody who goes to Tinley knows it's just an enormous show. And it was bigger than I ever thought it would be this year compared to what I'd seen 12 years ago or whatever. Yeah. But not a lot of boas. You know, there's some really nice ones. Jeff Ronnie had a couple of tables. And Jeff Ronnie's animals are just, you know, the boa file. His stuff is yeah. just out of this world. And Jeff's a really good friend of mine. Um, so I hung out with him a lot. And on his table, um, he had some animals from my friend Lucas Matlock. And, and Lucas... He had some of the fire boas and the super fires and the T positive super fires. They were just incredible. Um, but other than that, there was a handful of people that had boas, some really nice ones, but not the numbers that I would have expected. I, I did expect to see more. Um, and I didn't see a lot of any uh, anything else unusual. There was one guy that had some really nice Amazons, you know, the handful of wild caught emeralds you would expect to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a sprinkling of, of Colombian rainbow boa morphs and brazilian rainbow bow morphs there's pieds and there was t positives but not you know I suppose you know a lot of those shows are just swamped with ball pythons it's good right. to see this year there's a lot of colubrids right um but you know primarily ball pythons and crested geckos really but um but there were some there were some really nice boas and, and a lot of people came up to me which was kind of neat and, and asked me about the show and what, what we were doing next and when we were planning to record again and stuff so people seem to be really into into the podcast um, yeah which was kind of neat yeah, very cool. So how, how about Daytona? 
So Daytona, um, there was a breeder there that had some spectacular um, Bolivian boas that I almost scoffed up a couple. So that was really cool to see there. Um, the other cool boa thing that was cool down there was talking to Ron St. Pierre and what he's doing with the Emerald, you know, whole, mm-hmm. you, you know, the whole story going on there with Ron and those. Um, and, you know, he's got some real unusual looking animals and he's got quite yes. a few animals and he's, he's, I, have, I haven't he's, seen him post in a while. Has he, he seems to have gone quiet. Yeah, he does that from time to time. He kind of hibernates from social media for a while and then. When he forgets how sick of it he is, he'll come back on for a while. And then I, need, I need to give him a call. Yeah, yeah I, I texted him the other day to see if everything was going well, and he said everything is on track and doing well. And Great. He, yeah, so he may even so, be yeah, producing yeah. this year. Yeah, because he, he, he went about this in a very different way. Yes. Like, he bought pretty much only wild caught yeah. from a handful of people that he knows really well, and he's kept them outside in – which I think for establishing wild cots, if you're going to do it, like I've, sp- I've spoken before about how I do it, you know, I keep them in high humidity, you know, low stress environment, you know, yeah. and I just ignore them. Being able to put them in large outdoor enclosures, you know, where they're getting a lot of rain throughout the day, you know, they're getting temperatures that you've seen those pictures, you know, where the female could be basking at 100 degrees or whatever, you know. Um, having that ability to thermoregulate is really important. And I think that's really key to removing stress from wild-caught imports, which we don't see a lot of people successfully doing in, you know, the indoor captive environment where they're putting right. them in enclosures and stressing the hell out of them. And I think that, that just causes their decline really quickly. So I'm excited yeah. to see what he does. And, and we've talked about, you know, he said, you know, a year in, once he sees how everything's going, you know, bringing him on as yeah. a guest, or they talk about his approach to to keeping uh, and establishing wild caught animals because everyone's different. And I think you know the, the the only way we learn is by hearing alternative thoughts on 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 what people are doing and and what doesn't work and what does work. Yeah, well, one of the things that Ron told me in Daytona from our podcasts and other podcasts on emeralds, um, the importance of water really mm-hmm. hit home to him. And you know, I had talked about, you know, if you change a water bowl on an emerald daily, they'll Straight drink it daily. Drink. Yeah. And I and I talked about how Dennis told me that that their emeralds they'll they'll mist with a hose right on the animal and the animal will drink mm-hmm. morning and afternoon. And he'll do that until the animal stops drinking. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's five minutes, it doesn't matter if it's twenty minutes. They stay mm-hmm. on that animal so Ron collected all that stuff and he came up with a, a game plan of, you know, the yeah. misting system. So if it's not raining, he, he's artificially yeah. raining on the animals daily a few times a day. And the way his his setup is that all drains off. So it's not a saturated environment exactly. for the animal. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, he's got a really cool, interesting approach. I'm sure he's tweaked it a million times and and it'll be interesting, you know, once he's got, like you say, a year or two under his belt, get him on here and talk about yeah. all that for sure. Yeah, I think I think with emeralds, it's important to get them, you know, to miss them so they get that rain effect. You know, people mm-hmm. are afraid to miss them directly. I, I miss mine directly on their skin. Yeah. I've, got, I've got both pro-mist misting systems in cages, and I'll go in and I'll hit them with, you know, just a, that wand type yeah. of mist system. Um, and they drink from it. You know, people worry about, you know, they think about, you know, what about evaporative cooling? You're going to cause stress to the animal. I've never seen that. No. I've seen them turn around and start drinking and defecating. Yeah. 
you know. But the key to it is not having a saturated enclosure because in the trees, there's lots of airflow. Right. But in those environments, if you don't have good ventilation, then right. you're going to you're gonna kind of kick in problems. And, and I've got really good ventilation in mine. And I'm able to drain off the the water from my from my animals, you know. Right. Um, and I think that's a really really important aspect. You know, you're right. They they will drink anytime you got fresh water. They will drink. Yeah, yeah. You know, for sure. Yeah. So, anything else at Daytona? Um. So there was actually some Jamaican boas, which was really cool to see. They were um very different than my animals. They, which are cool too they they have that black tail but they were more yellow in color more minor more that orange uh in uh, color so it was cool to see those um there was some viper boas that i uh, had my eye on but nothing really blew me away to to give it a shot and grab them but there were some viper boas so that was really cool to see um i thought it was pretty good in the fact that I wasn't overwhelmed with ball pythons and crested geckos down there. There was a pretty good mixture of um, different animals. And there was actually, uh, <laughs> there was a guy there that had, um, uh, he had maybe five tables and he opened up his area and then he, he brought all his four foot by two foot um, black cages and he had, Probably fifty adult blood pythons there. I saw that. I saw that on one of the YouTube kind of things. That was so, that was really neat. So I walked in and I'm looking around and he's like, "Oh, hey, um, if there's anything you want to know about blood pythons, just ask." You know? And I'm like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem." But uh, I was like, "Man, I've been out of the game for a while, I guess." Um, but that was pretty cool to see. You know, just uh, I don't know, you know how much I would want to bring all my breeders to a show with no. everything going on there, but no. it, it, yeah. it did make, it did make for a pretty impressive display, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, just the amount of work involved there, but like, Oh for, yeah. You know, for me moving, I've got like a hundred and maybe 120, 130 animals. Moving those was the most stressful thing I've ever done. The thought of moving 50 of them to a show yeah. with enclosures, setting them yeah. all up. You could not pay me enough money for that. It literally even if looked it guaranteed. Like, even if it, it guaranteed selling every baby, I'm yeah. not going to do it. Yeah. yeah, it looked like literally like a um, you know somebody's collection. Like you'd walk in yeah. and you were surrounded by three sides of of cages. Yeah. So yeah. It was, yeah, it, it, like it I say, it was impressive. a cool display. But you know, yeah. I don't know if I would ever do that. <laughs> do you see uh, many tree boas at it, or were they mainly just a um, wild caught collection of stuff? Yeah, really, just a wild caught collection. I, I, like from the green trees to the emeralds to any uh, Amazon tree tree boas, everything looked pretty much wild caught. There was some pretty cool looking animals, but um, you know, the one thing that actually uh, I've been thinking a lot about too is those uh, calabar pythons. <laughs> Yeah, I have um, as well. <laughs> yeah, I've been really thinking about those a lot. Uh, I wouldn't mind getting a pair and uh, messing around with them, I think. So, so for me, the reason I'm interested in them is just due to the rarity of them in terms yes. of breeding. Yeah, right? They're not, not expensive they're, snakes. They're not you know? expensive. Um, they're not hard to keep because, you know, I've never kept them personally, but I worked in a reptile store in Belfast whenever I was doing my PhD. And when we got them in, you just give them a really deep substrate and we would put um, defrosted fluff mice into a bowl and they would come out at night, eat them and disappear again. So you never yeah. saw them. Right. Uh, and every so often I saw, maybe it was outback reptiles would have captive bred babies. Yeah. 
and uh, and I keep looking at them, thinking, God, maybe you know, maybe I should because I could keep them in a really simplistic enclosures just with deep substrates and i think they'll be fun to do and i think this year that's one of the things that i'm going to pick up because you know i've done it with a bunch of things that that people might not you know think about you know i've got duns pythons for that reason you know ultra rare we're in the hobby people weren't interested in them whenever i saw them you know they were they were 65 pounds each back in the uk in like 1997 98 kind of thing and nobody wanted them um, and now, you know, because they're basically extinct, well, they're thankfully, you know, Nick and Ryan have, have bred them very successfully and you see right. more available. They're, they're still expensive. And I saw some wild caught ones coming in this year. But again, it's just a rarity just because I don't want to see these things disappear. And I think you could see things like Calabar pythons disappearing yeah. because, Absolutely. you know, that, they're such a fossorial little animal that people aren't interested because they don't see yeah. them. Yeah, that's one of the things that draws me to them. Um, I don't care about the value. It's it's that it seems to me that that could be an animal in five or 10 years. Everybody's like, oh, remember when you could get these, you know, yeah. so it'd be nice to have them just to have an established little thing. So people that that niche people that do want them, they're available to, you know. Yeah, I think, yeah, you, you've uh, you've definitely sparked that interested me again. I'm going to start looking at those. I think yeah. that's my, I've, I've got no plans to buy anything this year, except a male annulated tree boa. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and if I can get a, a nice male Emerald Northern, that's close to adult or adult, I will, but I might pick up a, a couple of, um, Calabar pythons as well. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're cool. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that would be a, a game plan of mine also. So we'll see. Yeah. What about you, Rob? So one interesting bit out of this that uh, might be news or not, depending on how uh, up-to-date on your podcast you are, is that I've been uh, – so Chuck had a life situation come up that has made him indisposed for the fight club. So uh, I've been doing that with Dr. J for – we've now recorded three episodes. When we're done here, I'll do a fourth um, but I think only the first one has been released. But the funny bit is we actually specifically went into, I brought up Calabar pythons in the course of our discussion oh, cool. in the last episode that folks will hear in a couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, I'm, I love that whole discourse you guys had there. I think, I think there's a ton of great stuff there. Yeah, there are awesome. litters that were exciting to me. Um, I think it's Honza from the Czech Republic, who's on the Caribbean Bio Group on Facebook. Um had a couple litters of tropidophis, so that's obviously oh, wow. exciting, not something we see. Yeah, 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 I forgot about that. Yeah, oh, you need to send me a link to that. I haven't I haven't seen that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I will. Um, and then I think on there, too, I had seen a couple litters of angulifer, which are not quite as rare, oh, right? That happens yeah. some, uh-huh. uh, some, but that's still something that's not common at all. And really, from what I understand or what I see, you know, that's a potentially very large animal. So just the... And big babies. Do well, with those is a whole different thing. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, like reticulated python size babies. Yeah, to to interrupt there briefly, um, I've saw those in person at, at at Bristol Zoo in the UK whenever it was in its old location. Um, a friend of mine was the the lead um, reptile curator there, and they had these very large. They had a beautiful reptile house, but they had very large enclosures. And one of them, they had green sanzinia that produced every year or two years for them. 
um, big litters of babies just and they didn't cycle them it just the room cycled itself because it's in this old victorian building um, and they also had uh, white lips that did the same northern white lips that would just produce all the time they had to, i think they had to destroy the eggs every year because there was just no demand for them but also they produced um the, uh, the boas and and he showed me some of the babies that attached out and they were enormous but then you looked at the adults and they were pretty big animals as well you know yeah, they uh, they were pretty intimidating. Very, very cool. Yeah, hundred percent. So those were the things that have really jumped out to me over the year. I'm sure I'm sure there were a ton of things that if I was remembering them, they would impress me. But uh, yeah, that's what stuck out. Well, very cool. Well, I thought what we could do with in closing, we could we could just talk about our goals for the podcast for this year because we're we're going to be back on track, um, and. You know, in the last few weeks, um, I've been talking to a couple of different people about being potential guests, and and I'll mention those. We don't know which one's going to come up first, and then some other people that, that are some other ideas that we're we're kind of batting around. Um, but also, I would say that for any of the listeners, um, email one of us or send us a message on Facebook about about episodes that you would be interested in hearing, and I'll spend time. I'm sure. Keith and Rob can spend time and thinking about who we could bring on to talk about those because, you know, we don't want to just talk about what we're really into each time. We want to talk about what really people in general are interested in, uh, in the boas. So the two people that I've been talking to um, recently that have both said yes to coming on board, um, are, uh, one of them is Dr. Graham Reynolds. And, and Graham um, is, I've known him for a while. I've, I've published a couple of papers with him. Um, he is uh, an associate professor uh, herpetology or biology um, at UNC Asheville. So only about two and a half hours from me, in fact. Um, but uh, he has done some really great work on uh, kind of Chilobothrus species, particularly things like, you know, he was part of the crew that, that identified the Conception Bank Silver Boa uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and and he was just one of the co-authors, co-editors of, of the recent book on kind of Caribbean boas. So I thought he'd be a great guest to come on, talk about the book, talk about his, his adventures in, in, in the Caribbean and finding those boas. Um, and also I was talking to a, a good friend of mine, Scott Bobak. Scott and I work on some rattlesnake projects together and uh, genomic uh, rattlesnake genetic and behavior projects. And, uh, and I had mentioned would he be interested in coming on to talk about his, his work on boas? Because Scott's PhD um, thesis was based on his work on island boas. Uh, and he is responsible for bringing some of those rare island boas into captivity. Um, so I thought he would be a great a great guest because he can talk about not only the the behavior, the breeding, uh, and, and and the um, kind of uh, kind of captive care of the animals, but he can also talk about the islands and, you know, how he found them, where they were inhabiting, uh, kind of unusual traits there. And also the experiments that he's undertaken over the years to look at, um, you know, if there's a lot of head morphology differences in the island boas compared to mainland, and you've probably seen that yourself in the animals you keep, right. um, to talk about those kind of studies, which I thought would be kind of cool. And he said that he would be more than happy to come on board as well. Um, Keith, you've been talking to Ed Marino about coming on to do a an Amazon Basin episode, yeah, yeah, willing to do, yeah, yeah, um, which I think would be great. I had um, been in contact with Bob Henderson. Uh, for those of you that keep Corallis, any of the rare Corallis, you'll know that Bob is kind of the the godfather of all of that. He's written, literally, written the books on 
on any of the, uh, the especially the kind of Hortolanus complex that will include Ruschenbergerai and so on. Uh, he's done a lot of work on on Corallus grenadensis, um, and he had said that he's like he didn't know who would be interested in listening to him, and that you know he we might be lucky to get half an hour of conversation out of him. But I think um, even half an hour of Bob Henderson would be kind of cool. And I'm yeah. I'm, I'm going to contact him again and see if I can stretch that out to an hour uh, <laughs> and get him on board, which I think would be really cool because he you know he's done so much work with Corallus grenadensis and Corallus kukai and so on, which are animals that. Um, are are not represented very well in captivity period. Right. So I thought it would be kind of cool to talk about. Um, we mentioned prior to this uh, the show about uh, a more in-depth look at Sanzinia. Um, it would be fun to do something with sand boas, rubber boas, and rosy boas. And also uh, it would be really interesting to do something more with uh, with Candoia. Yeah. So I'm going to start um, probing people um, in relation to those Um Keith, if you could do the same thing for Sanzinia, we yep. mentioned a certain individual, yep. which could be kind of cool. And, um, and, and I think it'd be great just if we can kind of develop these to like record once a month, um, and we'll, we'll target it for there. But I will say if anybody has got a, an episode, they'd be really interested in hearing or a species they'd be interested in, in hearing about, um, please drop us an email. You can find, um, myself rob and, and, and keith on facebook and instagram i'm sure and i'm very easy to find if you just search my name and virginia tech you'll, you'll you'll get my email address um we're always looking for some interesting topics and i know actually some thinking about it i know some individuals that actually do some work on hog island bows in the wild which would be kind of cool maybe that would be an interesting one as well yeah and again you know when we were talking about Replandia, i was thinking quetzal would actually be a good guest too for boas because he's got a lot of experience with but was in the wild and at his facility when he was in Costa Rica and yeah. he's seen the eyelash bows in the wild and he, mm-hmm. he, he's got some good boa stories for sure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ketzel's a great guy. I've always enjoyed hanging out with him whenever uh, I met up with him at, um, at the Arlington and ARBC shows. So yeah. he would, he would be great to, to bring on board as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So any other news or business folks before we close out? Um, the only thing I would like to say is, Rob, get your uh, hiking gear ready because I'm planning on dr- you dragging me along on as many trips as you possibly can this year. <laughs> well, I'm, yep, I'm, well, definitely, Keith. I'm super excited for it, and uh, yeah, as ever, you know, it'll be uh, it'll be fun, and we'll find some cool stuff, and you know, the experience is really the part that I love so much. You know, yeah, we've had. Uh, so many great memories out of that it's it's both what you find but also you know sort of the relationships and yeah. and all that is even more important absolutely i'm envious you know i'm not going to get on any herping trips this year um, i've only got really one international trip and that's to japan in august for a meeting but uh, i don't think i'll be able to tie any any herping into that there or reptile related stuff but uh, i am jealous of this uh, of the trips you guys are taking yeah yeah all right do you want to close us out? Yeah. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening to Boas, Boas, Boas with Warren, Rob, and myself. Please check out the NPR networks on YouTube um, and the website moralipythonradio.com. You can follow us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast you uh, app you happen to be using. 
Uh, we hope you listen to us next month when uh, Warren will snag a special guest for us. Um, should be a great show. And until then, enjoy your animals and follow your passions, guys. Thank you.